I'm Grace Jung, and welcome to K-Drama School. Class is now in session. is a little show called What Happened in Bali. It's also written out as Something Happened in Bali, but the Korean title is Bali is a Sengginyu, which literally translates as The Thing That Happened in Bali. And this is an SBS drama, SBS standing for Seoul Broadcasting System. And the show came out in 2004 in the winter, and it stars some huge names. At the time, they were nobodies, but it starts stars some really big names like Soji Hub, uh, Cho In Song, Park Jin, and Ha Ji Won. And if you guys saw that not so very good drama on Netflix called Chocolate, you've seen Ha Ji Won. You've seen her. She's the girl who's crying like every three minutes on that show. And Ha Ji Won does exactly that on this show. She's just crying constantly. There's a 15-year difference between what happened in Bali and chocolate, and Hajiwon is doing the exact same thing. It's quite amazing. Hajiwon plays the very typical Korean drama female protagonist. She plays a girl named Yisoo Jung, who's a 20-something-year-old orphan of working class. She was very smart, got good grades, but did not go to college because she did not have the money. And she has an older brother who's always owing money all over town to gangsters and thugs, and Soo Jung has to bail him out bail him out of trouble at all times. Jaemin is played by Cho In-sung, who is the rich guy, and Park Ye-jin plays Youngju, the rich girl who is engaged to Jaemin. Uh, they are going to get married, but they hate each other. Uh, the only reason why they're getting married is because their rich parents want them to, right? That's how it goes. The rich marry the rich. It's very incestuous like that. So Soo Ji-sa plays Kang In-uk, who is the poor guy, the poor guy who used to date Youngju back in college, but Youngju dumped him because she's a greedy little bitch. And the three of them, they meet in Bali, where Soo Jung is the tour guide. And uh, she's taking these guys around tour and um, she and Jaemin start to kind of dig each other. Well, actually, it's more one-sided. Jaemin starts to show some affections towards him, and he's such an asshole. Like, he's very jealous of the fact that Inuk and Young Youngju used to have a relationship in the past, and he tries to sleep with Sujung in order to get back at them, right? Real classy stuff. Real gentlemanly-like stuff. And, um, of course, Young, um, Sujung is not going to sleep with Jaemin because that's not the virtuous thing to do, all right? That's not what a virtuous female protagonist does. They do not sleep for money. So she gets kicked out and she's, you know, of course, crying. And then Sujung gets scammed by her own boss who owes her a bunch of money. Like he's really like backed up in payments with her paychecks. He hasn't been paying her. Sujung also saved up something like $10,000 like after working for several years. And her boss steals all of her money and jets off to who knows where. He just disappears and she's just left on her own. And so she uh, returns to Korea and she starts crashing at her friend Mihi's place, uh, which just so happens to be right next door to where Kang Inuk is living, the poor guy. And Kang Inuk starts to kind of fall in love with Sujung. It's it's quite interesting. Uh, it might be because he and Sujung kind of come from the shits. You know, they have this poor working class background. I also think that it's because Sujung reminds him a lot of his own mother. His mother was this poor woman. She uh, got pregnant by an asshole who used to beat the shit out of her. And now she runs a restaurant. She's still very poor working class. She's still getting, you know, tied up with bad men. And Inuk is just so sick of seeing that, you know? Um, but anyway, Sujung needs a lot of money because she's been scammed out of everything. She's crashing at a friend's place. She doesn't have anywhere anywhere to go. She has nothing to, she has, she has nothing to show for. So Sujung needs money. So she goes to Jaemin to get a job. And Jaemin gives her a job as an administrator. And then uh, Jaemin's dad finds out, the chairman of the company PAX Group, where he works at, and he fires her. Yeah, 
it's real unfair. You see this time and time again, but Sujeon gets screwed pretty much by every single person on this show. Like she gets slapped in the face by Min's mom and she gets the shit kicked out of her by Youngju's mom. She ends up finding the boss who scammed her out of all of her money, but like turns out he's a bum and he can't give her back any of the money he owes her. And then in the meantime, Sujeon has this older brother who keeps showing up for money from her. You know, it's just a nightmare. And and on top of that, Chaemin keeps showing up at her house unannounced. You know, he's just like usually drunk and belligerent. It's just like bangs on her door, screaming her name, throwing a fit. And, you know, like Kang Inuk's right next door. So he hears it. And every time he sees Chaemin shows up, he gets jealous and he starts treating Sujang like crap. And it's awful. You know, she just can't catch a break. And in the meantime, Youngju fucking hates all three of them because she's engaged to one of the guys she used to date the other one and neither of them are into her anymore <laughs> you know they both want sujung so youngju hates her and gives sujung a lot of grief for it so this girl just can't catch a break sujung's life sucks honestly it's it's no wonder that 15 years later you know hachiwan is in a totally different drama but she's still crying I feel like she's still crying in a different drama 15 years later because she just, she can't get over the bullshit that she had to deal with all throughout what happened in Bali. It's just, it's just never ending for her. This melodrama formula for this uh, young female protagonist, right, who's an orphan, who's of working class, it's the baseline for a lot of Korean dramas. You'll see it time and time again. The girls, they tend to be poor, but virtuous, and they're hardworking, but all the odds are stacked up against her, and there's a rich guy dangling freedom before her eyes, but there's still obstacles in the way, that obstacle being class difference, and the fact that, you know, like, the rich guy's parents, they couldn't stand the idea of him marrying a poor girl, right? I mean, it's inconceivable that a rich person would help out a poor person. It's just nonsense to rich people, right? So she's dealing with a lot of rejection and that's a constant theme throughout these Korean dramas. But what happened in Bali is slightly different from some of the other shows I've seen. It's got a very tragic ending. And like I said, from episode one, there's going to be spoilers in every single episode. So spoiler alert, it's got a very tragic ending. Okay, so Kang Inuk scams Chimin out of his assets through some financial scheme. I don't know the ins and outs. It's very complicated, but he ends up stealing all their money. And then he bounces off to Bali and he takes Sujung with him. So ta-da, in the end, Sujung ends up choosing Kang Inuk, right? But once she gets to Bali, she realizes that she loves Chimin. <laughs> just so fucked up, right? And, you know, while Sujung and Inuk are in bed together, Chaemin shows up with a gun and then he ends up shooting and killing the both of them. It's, it's so fucked up. It's awful. I mentioned in episode one of this podcast that the majority of Korean dramas are typically written by women, and this is true. But what happened in Bali is one of the few romantic Korean dramas that was written by a man named Kim Gi-ho. And Kim Gi-ho actually co-wrote it with another uh, TV screenwriter, a woman named Hwang Seung-yeon. Uh, Hwang Seung-yeon. And Kim Gi-ho is usually co-writing his screenplays with his wife, me. They collaborate often. In fact, eight years after what happened in Bali released, and that was a huge success, in 2012, uh, they released a TV project that they co-wrote together called Fashion King. And uh, it was panned by critics and fans. Nobody liked it, did very poor in the ratings. But it's it, thematically, it's got a lot of similarities between these two shows. Also, uh, Fashion King stars some huge names. It's got Yu Ain in it. It's got Shin Se-young in it and Kwon Yuri from Girls' Generation. So if you want to check it out, I would say check it out. It's partially set in New York. Um, it's got a lot of problems. It's not the best show, but I mean, I found it entertaining at the time. The one character I did like on Fashion King is the character Pung Suk, who is played by the very hilarious Yu Cheong. She's very funny in this show, and I, I felt like this show needed some funny characters. And Yu Cheong was a singer and comedic actress, but she unfortunately died of stomach cancer in 2014, a couple of years after Fashion King was released. But you see a similar character in what happened in Bali. She's just as funny. Her name's Mihi. Like I said, she's Sujung's roommate, and she's played by Shinyi, who's a hilarious actress. She's really great on this show and offers a lot of that comic relief that um, what happened in Bali has, like the heaviness that what happened in Bali has. The thing I hated about what happened in Bali, and I'll unfairly attribute to, attribute this to the fact that a man co-wrote this, is that Sujung 
gets mistreated by every single man on this show. Just they all do as they please. Like her brother is treating her like crap. Her boss steals from her. The chairman of the company mistreats her. And the two guys who claim to love her are treating her the worst. They're always forced kissing her in the face. A problem that I see in almost every single Korean drama, right? Grabbing her by the wrist, force kissing her in the face. It's so fucked up. They're always trying to sleep with Sujung. You know, and they don't even check in to see if she likes them back. You know, they're just trying to like get their hands down her pants. It's really awful. And then you see like the gangsters and thugs, of course, right? That um, that are involved with her older brother, and they're always coming after her, trying to get some money off of her or making her work, right? Like working as a hostess at bars and norebangs, you know, serving booze to male clientele. It's awful. And Sujung's roommate, Nihi, is also subject to similar forms of harassment, right? She's trying to be an actress, but the directors take advantage of her. They, they treat her like crap, and she needs to work part-time at Norebangs as a hostess in order to get by. So this gratuitous prostitution of female bodies and souls on this program is something I really could not stand. I couldn't see the point of it all. And the fact that a rich man shoots and murders her in the end is like, really, it's just really too much, you know? It's just like, what, you have uncontrollable jealousy, so you're going to shoot and kill the woman you claim to love. It's just ridiculous. I really had a hard time following a lot of the characters' motives on this show. The one character whose motives were somewhat clear is Kang Inuks, and he's this well-educated guy who quotes Gramsci's prison notebooks. He knows things about hegemony, and he's this very charming, handsome fella, and everybody likes him, you know? Everybody likes him at work. Uh, Sujung is charmed by him, but it's, it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, his life ends up so tragically in the end. There's a lot of male toxicity in this drama, like angry and abusive fathering. This is something I also saw on Fashion King. Jimin's dad, the chairman of Pax Group, is always wielding a golf club and hitting Jimin in the head with it, which is like, I mean, no wonder your son is so out of whack. You know, you're always beating him in the face with the golf club. Like, how do you think he's going to think straight, you know? And like you see you see this kind of thing from a lot of Korean dads. Like they're always wielding golf clubs as weapons and it's very tacky and I really I really wish it would stop already. Stop. Thematically the fact that a character like Sujung gets used over and over again, there's a reason for it, okay? So um this kind of young female protagonist was found in a lot of fiction, modern Korean fiction written throughout the Japanese colonial era, right around the time when Korea was just starting to industrialize. So between 1910 and 1945 during occupation, and then throughout the Korean War between 1950 and 1953, and then even in the post-Korean War years, right, through the 60s and 70s. That's really when this hard industrialization was happening in Korea. And Ruth Baraclaw, she writes about these kinds of uh, literatures that were cropping up during this time in her book, Factory Girl Literature. So the factory girl literature is about young women who's like laboring to make ends meet. They have a lot of people who are relying on her, usually her family, sometimes her children, sometimes her in-laws, sometimes her parents. Uh, and she's oftentimes single because her husband either died or he's a deadbeat or he's off, you know, doing things with people he shouldn't be doing things with. And the factory boss is always trying to get in her pants <laughs> because She's single and she doesn't have a man to protect her, right? So she, of course, has to get harassed by a factory boss. Uh, so she's always working and undereducated and vulnerable to society. So you see these kinds of women who represent the female labor force behind the textiles industry, which was cropping up in the 1920s and 30s. In fact, the female protagonist played by Shin Se-kyung on Fashion King, she is also somebody who works in the textiles and fashion industry in Dongdaemun. After liberation in 1945, followed by the Korea demarcation, followed by the war, uh, and in the 1960s and 70s, a lot of women were working in manufacturing. They were producing clothes. They were producing a lot of electronics, a lot of the radios and TV sets that people were starting to own in the, in the 60s, particularly. And uh, a lot of the children's goods, you know, like candy and toys, right? In fact, my mother was uh, one of these factory girls who were working in the late 1970s. She was a yogong 
yagong meaning a female laborer, particularly in a factories. And she was sent away from her farm town home in Hapcheon and Gyeongsangnam-do um, to make ends meet. Uh, when she was a teenager, she was about 14, 15 years old, and she was sent away to work at a factory where she had room and board and some very basic education, but her pr primary task was to work. And she sent home a lot of money to um, support her younger siblings, her five younger siblings, and her parents. Bearclaw argues that alongside these factory girls working came about a lot of these literatures. And these literatures document the plight of young girls working in urban settings, but it also demonstrates a lot of the political and sexual liberation that these women were experiencing, especially in these urban settings. So these types of storylines continue through the 80s and 90s, and I'm saying that they also started to spill over and leak into these TV drama narratives. I think TV writers like Kim Gi-hong and Lee Sun-mi were influenced by factory girl literature. Uh, if you look at their 1997 show that they co-wrote called Pyoru Negasume or Star in My Heart, the protagonist in that show is also a seamstress. And what's interesting about factory girl literature is that the protagonist is frequently used and abused by her family, by society, in order to pay off other people's debts. It's never her own debt. It's always somebody else's debt. And she has no agency. You know, she really doesn't have any of her own kind of choices to make in life. And she gets used up and thrown away time and time again. And I find that a bit frustrating and unfortunate. Anyway, uh, if you want to learn more about the factory girl uh, protagonist and literature and um, perhaps, you know, uh, implement that into your understanding of Korean dramas and class issues and gender issues, I would check out Ruth Baraclaw's book, Factory Girl Literature. Today's guest is Eric Escobar, and he's an American stand-up comedian based in Los Angeles. He performed on NBC's Last Comic Standing. He was also on Fox's I Can See Your Voice. He also gave a really great TED Talk at Carroll College in March 2020 about living a fulfilling life through humor. And he's a really great person, great comedian, overall wonderful human being. So let's talk to Eric Escobar. But you, you you lost a lot of weight during this pandemic, which is unusual because a lot of other people just put on weight. What happened? <laughs> I did. I, um, I think my biggest was like pushing 290-ish. Now I'm like between like uh. 190 and 200. Like I like live. Wow. Um, as soon as I got under 200, I was like, you know what? I don't care. I'm going to eat what I'm going to eat. Like that's, that was kind of yeah. like just the goal. Like just, just get under this number. Yeah. Wow, so you lost 100 pounds. Yeah, give or take. Some days 90. I want to treat myself to some pizza pie. Yeah. What? That's crazy. How did you... Well, congratulations. I mean, you look great. Do you feel good? Thank you. Um, yes. <laughs> I feel like... Uh, I don't know. I think for so long I was so heavy and I lived such a horrible lifestyle that like... Uh -huh. That was my norm. So I didn't realize, like, waking up and being like, oh, God, life. I didn't realize that was, like, not a thing. Now I wake up yeah. and I'm like, oh, wow, I'm awake. This is exciting. I'm just, like, having little serendipitous surprises every day of, like, oh, this is what it's like to – I can walk a block and not pass out. This is wonderful. In January, February-ish, right before the pandemic, I got diagnosed with high blood pressure. Hmm. And I was like – all right, that is what it is. Like, I'm half Filipino, half Mexican. Everyone mm -hmm. on both sides has high blood pressure. It's just a thing. Yeah. But um, I really don't want to take medication every day if I don't have to. Uh -huh. You know what I mean? Like, that, like, freaked me out when it was like, all right, you're getting to a point in your life where it's like, oh, for the rest of your life, you'll have to be like, do I have my meds on me? Like, mm -hmm. where are my meds? Like, always, you know, I can't, like, get off them. And also, right around when I found that out, like, I found out, like, a family friend passed away. Because they, like, cold turkey their high blood medication. Oh, shit. So I was already like, if I go down this journey, this is going to be crazy. Oh. So I kind of was just like, if I don't want to be on it, I guess I just got to lose weight. So I was kind of eating better. I was kind of exercising. But ultimately, I think the thing that really helped out is when the pandemic hit, I wasn't, like, all these road dates got canceled. Right. Which is fine. I get it. Let's stay safe. Let's be good. But I feel like when I was spending so much time not at home, I was 
constantly eating horrible. When you're on the road, you eat horribly. You horribly. Taco Bell every day. Every day. You drink every day. Every day. And it was just like getting off the road, I think, kind of like kickstarted this like, oh, you're eating better now just because you're not like going to McDonald's eight times a week. Yeah, that's the rough thing about being on the road in the States is that there's really nothing to yeah. eat but shit. Like, it's it's really awful. And, like, it really is more of a testament to, like, America and really its eating habits and its food establishment and food industry. It's really, it's awful. Because, like, when I went to Arkansas, yeah. it was pretty much like that. And I, I was just, like, I would make efforts you know and like the, the the comic i was with i was just like can we try and eat something healthy today you know so we would go and like eke out these cafes that have like an avocado toast <laughs> like uh, and, you know? salad yeah yeah like which is like what like an iceberg lettuce and a tomato and ranch dressing you know but like but i mean it's there it's just you have to really eke it out because otherwise, and especially when you're on the road, like you're so tired because you're jet lagged, you know, you're performing like late at night, you sleep in and, you know, you just want to like grab whatever is closest to you. And it's like, that's usually fast food. And um, I think also like being on the road, being away from home, like, you know, you try to like comfort your homesickness by stuffing your face with 100%. a lot of bullshit. And yeah, a lot of that's going on. So. Well, good for you, man. And I, I hope you um, stay on it because that's hard. You know, I think it's really hard to lose weight um, unless like it's like that, unless it yeah. feels life threatening, you know, or if it feels like it's suddenly you're like, it, oh, it's like, oh, this is my lifestyle now. Like being overweight is now my lifestyle. And until you have that reckoning, it's hard to just be like, okay, I'm going to try and, you know, change my habits because eating is a habit, right? Like well, as a, as a human being, I can recognize in myself, like whatever I do, I like really enjoy and almost need to take everything I can from that experience. If that makes sense. Like if I'm going on the road to, I don't know, let's call it like Seattle like, I don't want to just do Seattle. It's like, you know how it is. Like, yo, what's going on in Spokane? What's going on in Tacoma? Oh, the day before, I could go over here. That's here. Like, everything I do, I really want to take everything that I can get from that and, like, cherish and, and run with it. And I feel like my whole life I felt the weight about food, where it's like, every meal's got to be fun. Oh, we're going to have, like, a big breakfast here. Let's get, like, this special thing over here for lunch. Oh, dinner over here. Let's get a cool snack. And I think it really comes down to like food is just fuel. You know what I mean? You don't have to get like a bunch of crazy things or spend your money on like every meal to eat out. It's because it's like, oh, let's like take it all. And it's like, no, you're just hungry. Like it doesn't have to be like a crazy, like don't get a large pizza. Just get like a taco or get a salad. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Yeah. I think it takes a lot of uh willpower to not get a whole pizza for yourself and just yeah. get a taco you know because like you know even me like i love i'm obsessed with food i love food um you know koreans like they eat a huge variety every time right like they're the whole panchan thing is a whole ritual like panchan it's like when i have just a sandwich i don't yeah. feel satisfied you know it's like i get it it's once but it's like it's like one thing whereas koreans they have at least like 25 things you know per meal right it's like there's a soup there's the rice if you're gonna have the rice oh you have to have panchan you have to have the kimchi you have to have the spinach you have to have the 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 whatever like all these varieties on the table and they just have this really diverse way of eating like you know and it's like this harmonious it's like a part of their their ritual their culture their whole thing and it's like because i was so used to that growing up and then you know when i started feeding myself like as an adult you know, I, I keep striving for that. I'm keep yeah. chasing after that, but it with non-Korean <laughs> foods. And so I get it. I, I, I understand when people are like, let's get like five appetizers, you know, like let's get right. And it's like, oh, you do that. You're going to pig out. You're going to feel like shit. You know, it, it's you're right. It's, it's I, a whole. It's I a forgot whole what thing. it was. I was going to say, I feel like it's so fascinating how. I also love food and I also love like whenever there's something new, it's like, Oh, how do you guys come up with that? What's the origin of this? Where are you taking it from? Yeah. And um, 
I remember we went to like a Filipino restaurant somewhere. I think it was in LA, but I remember me and some friends we went, they were all Filipino and they were like, we have this special, it's like chicken with white sauce. And we're like, oh, okay, that uh-huh. sounds tasty. Let's just get one for the table. And we get it. And it's literally like boiled chicken with like Campbell's cream of mushroom soup, like on top of it. <laughs> and I'm like, this is gross. Yeah. Like, no, it's like, what, what's going on? And we were talking with our server, and I guess it's like a, a nice Filipino dish because back when the war happened, they would give Filipino, like the, mil- the U.S. military people would give Filipinos like, oh, here's this soup or here's this bowl of Campbell's or here's this whatever. And they're like, exactly. oh, let's make something with it. So they would just put it on top exactly. of chicken. <laughs> and it's so crazy yep. how that for them is a delicacy. And for us, it was like, oh, whatever. But like that's how it came to be. I think that's – just- Exactly. Same with – um. Isn't Bon Mi? I want to say Bon Mi sandwiches yeah. were made because the French mm-hmm. went down and they're mm-hmm. like, "Hey, this looks mm-hmm. good. Let's put it in bread. <laughs> Let's put it in some fucking baguette. Put exactly. It in baguette. Let's fucking... go. Sorry. Yeah. You fucking French people, man. Like these fucking whites bringing the bread into the Asian countries, causing indigestion everywhere. You know, fucking yeah. heartburn. Like I love bread. I'm obsessed with bread, but I. I know that it's not good for my bodily constitution because I get heartburn. I feel sleepy. You know, I get my face gets bloated. I feel like crap when I eat too much bread. And, you know, it's just but I don't have that feeling with rice. I could eat as much rice as I want. I agree. I feel like every time actually, I think a big part of my weight loss was it wasn't consciously being like, oh, I'm going to be keto. or I'm going to be paleo. It was really just like, yo, instead of getting, you know, like a sandwich or instead of, you know, whatever, let's get a salad, kind of, sort of, just like keeping my bread intake like in check. But I also went hog wild on rice. You know what I mean? Like I was like, I'm still eating rice. I'm going to be careful with bread, but also eat the rice. And like, I lost a ton of weight. <laughs> it was like the bread that was like the factor that was like, ah. Yeah. I think bread does, you know, it does bloat up people, especially if their constitution isn't, it's not fit for, for wheat flour, you know, like there's all this talk about like, um, like lactose intolerance. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like I have this, uh, she's, she's Danish, but she's a Korean adoptee okay. grew up in, uh, Co- grew up in Copenhagen. And she wrote this paper about lactose intolerance and these Korean adoptees who were forced to eat a lot of uh, dairy growing up, Whoa, right? Because that's in, the culture, in, yeah. that's the culture in Denmark. They eat a lot of dairy. More like, like every, the culture because it's, almost... it's milk. <laughs> All right, oh my... let's keep going. That's <laughs> <laughs> you got to be you. You wrote, you got to be you. That's a very Eric Escobar kind of joke. You know, you got to be you. You got to do you. But yeah, she uh she wrote this paper about like how um this term lactose intolerance, right? It basically is it's actually a xenophobic term. It makes everybody whose bodily constitution doesn't fit a white person's constitution, it makes them a sick person. It makes them an invalid, right? With this term intolerance. And then nowadays you got people, white people saying they're gluten-free or they're gluten intolerant. Yeah. And it's like, are you gluten intolerant or are you just, I don't know. Like it just, it feels weird because yeah. I, I'm, I'm like, yeah, I'm like, it's the Asians and like the, you know, it's like all, it's the people from like Asia who are like gluten intolerant technically. Like we're, we don't, we, we're not used to eating dairy foods. We're not used to eating wheat flour foods, you know, like that's not natural to our diet. Um, it's not natural to our land. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that's how it's been. But suddenly they're like, oh, we're gluten intolerant. But it's like, are you gluten intolerant or are you just trying to lose weight? Like, are you just trying to get away from, you know, bleached flour, wheat carbs and just trying to lose weight? Like, I don't know. It's a weird thing. I think a lot of people, at the end of the day, people just like love to have control and they love to be in power and they love to feel like their status mm-hmm. is elevated and I think anytime labels are brought into an equation, someone is definitely feeling more validated because they now have a label to like give their opinion like some cred. And then there's also people on the other side 
where it's like, wait, now we feel boxed in or now we feel excluded from like a label, which is like super annoying. And I think we're in the era of labels <laughs> and people, yeah, you know what I mean? They're just like, oh, well, I just don't like to eat bread as much. But if I say I'm gluten intolerant or whatever, like now it's like, oh, I'm part of a community that has this. And it's like, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's just like keep everything in mind. And, I don't know. It's so funny. It's like, like, because white people are so sick of being just called white people and they're not called like POC and like, yeah. you know, all this other shit. They're we like, need to oh, create let's, our let's own use- boxes. <laughs> Yeah, like I've recently been thinking a lot about like like decolonization and decoloniality just like physically, physically yeah. experiencing that and spiritually experiencing that. Like like I'm like I'm not, you know, I haven't been a Christian for many years now, but like you know, just kind of returning to Buddhism just to reconnect with like my eastern roots and eastern spirituality that way and getting further away from like, you know, western Christianity and like getting further away from bread and like, Mm -hmm. you know, waffles and all the things that I love and going more towards like rice and fish and like greens just to be like, yeah, like, like fuck the white man, you know, I'm gonna gonna live my life. When I look at a lot of Filipinos and a lot of Filipino Americans, like, yo, for years we were eating like guavas and coconuts, (laughs) fish and rice. And then, you know, we get very colonized for a very long time. And then for the, there's this long period where we're eating things that we're, like, not used to. Or we're, like, adapting our food to the new way. It's yes. Like, when Whoever invented deep frying things and showed it to the Filipinos, they just screwed us. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, we're all super healthy. And now we all have, like, diabetes, <laughs> like, 45 years old. Because someone showed us how to deep fry everything. So now we do. And we're like, ah! I'll blame them but it's it's crazy because when we look at like just the way certain areas of the world are are consuming food maybe what the levels of healthiness or unhealthiness that they are uh-huh. a lot of it was you know they're not eating the decolonial versions of what they had yep. hundreds of years ago they're eating like oh milk we haven't tried to put this in our diet <laughs> try to put it in our diet now like that's no, not the best idea yeah yeah, it's like, what is this? Let's just put it in our bodies. Let's just go and do it. You know? <laughs> it, looks, it looks all right. The whites are having it. And like that's the whole like global hierarchy thing. It's like, like mm-hmm. as you were talking about with the Campbell's soup thing. It's like it's Campbell's soup. It's canned processed goods and it's not at all like considered quality. It's actually, yeah. you know, lack of quality it's it's like an emergency thing and you take it to the philippines and the filipinos are like oh look at this sacred white man's food it is you know it's like oh this it's got that labeling that branding of the white man and they're like oh let's elevate this like this is elevated food this is quality food you know it's 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 a whole global hierarchy thing that's all it is it is and it's it's wild now. Now that's how we have bomby sandwiches, you know, what I mean? mm-hmm. <laughs> like which are so good. I mean, things, like in our lives, where it's like the, like the journey of them to get there. It's like wow, like either we shouldn't have this, or this is something that was recently introduced to like my community or like my culture. Mm-hmm. How, like, did you grow up watching Korean dramas? I know nothing about them <laughs> other than every time I meet someone who's into Korean dramas and they tell me, they're like. Oh man, it's an intense world. There's a lot going on. Oh, I feel like you're either not, you don't watch them or you're like a fan. I feel like there's your very mom. Around. Your mom never watched them. Never, not really. She was just kind of like, oh, it's out Frazier. I don't know. Very <laughs> <laughs> westernized lady. Well, what did, what TV shows did you watch growing up? Um, TV for me, I think, was very exciting because like i would i would be able to sneak downstairs and watch tv after my parents fell asleep so for me it was a very like fun like rebellious activity Mm -hmm. where i'm like oh look what i'm doing i'm watching tv i'm not supposed to but because Mm -hmm. of the time slot i like watched a lot of weird tv growing up like i (laughs) love i love like nbc sitcoms like just shoot me suddenly Uh 
Supposed wow. to talk radio, some Caroline in the city. Wow. Uh, Will and Grace is a must. Friends. I love friends. Wow. I really hate. Um, yeah, I like like those types of TV shows because you can just leave them on and just like yeah. go about your day. And chill. Yeah. Sitcoms, I guess, for the most part. Mm-hmm. What about you? What's Are you like Korean drama all the time, every day? Or do you like just pepper it in amongst other stuff? No, I, I'm kind of similar. Like, I, I guess that would be the one consistent thing that I was like practicing decoloniality in, in that I was watching Korean dramas since birth and n- never stopped. You know, there's this whole history with like Korean dramas and how it came to the U.S. and all of that. But it has mostly to do with Korean immigrants and them creating a system so that they can watch content based back in the motherland you know and it's yeah and actually the the broadcasters in korea they make a lot of money from us so good for them but do you, yeah yeah go ahead i was gonna say do you feel like korean dramas or something that you like because you like grew up with it or do you think you like it because it's like this is great tv like for me like with wrestling i feel like i grew up with wrestling and that's why i still watch wrestling then there was a period where I didn't watch it, and then I got into it because I'm like, oh, this is just, like, cool. You know what I mean? Like, how, where are Korean dramas for you on that scale? It's for me, like, I do think it's good TV. Um, not everybody feels this way because it is very soapy. But, yeah. uh, the, I mean, that's – I just feel like it's a form of, you know, it's gender discrimination, right? Like, to say that soap operas and daytime dramas are trash, you know? Like – like I, I study cinema media studies at UCLA and that's a whole like area of study. Like it's just TV studies, people defending themselves, you know, and yeah. like TV studies, people defending television. It's like a whole like air. It's a whole field in and of itself. Like to be like, oh, like film, like cinema is masculine and serious and it's quality and it's highbrow and all this nonsense. And then TV is trash. It's garbage. It rots the brain. It's junk food. It's, you know, and it's like, it's this whole like debate. But I, I, I wasn't born in the States. I was born in Korea and, you know, just television was just all Korean television growing up. And then when we moved to Brooklyn, when I was like in kindergarten and my mom was renting these VHS tapes at these video stores in New York and bringing them home, like that was very comforting for me because like they're speaking my language they're They look like me, you know? So like, Whereas, you know, like, you know, a lot of Asian American and Asian Americans, Asian America is like a big category in and of itself, right? It's like a very diverse category, like splintered with like Filipinos and, you know, like Koreans, Japanese, Chinese, it's like very. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so like, it's very splintered. But for me, like, because I had Korean dramas growing up, I don't really have that hang up of feeling like, oh, like media representation is lacking of Asians. Like, I don't have that anger. I don't have that. I don't have that that hang up because I've always seen myself on Korean dramas, you know, and not just Korean dramas. Like my parents rented me Korean sitcoms, Korean variety shows, you know, like that's what my dissertation is about. I wrote about Korean comedy variety shows, you know? So, and you know, when I talk to other Korean Americans, like they all, they all know my references, you know? So it's like definitely community building thing. It's identity building thing. Um, So that's what Korean dramas mean to me. And I watch a lot of Korean dramas, like a lot, but I also, um, I also watched Friends, you know. I watched yeah. like a lot of black sitcoms like Parenthood and like oh, yeah. Brothers and you know, watched a lot of that and Hang with Mr. Cooper. That's always a classic. See, that I didn't see. Like like most of the shows that you mentioned, I did oh. not see. Other than like Friends and like Frasier, which I recognize, like the rest, I was just like, I have no idea what he's talking Like the Susan thing, I was like, What? Like, these they were are- all like to mid 90s shows they got like dropped they were still like in syndication so it was just yeah. like the late night hour of like no one's watching that's TV what it is here, or they're watching yeah. you know, like johnny carson or letterman or leno like looks <laughs> right um, yeah yeah it's good stuff 
and I also want to say it's it's fascinating to hear your perspective as someone who came up with a lot of like Asian media and you're like I, I saw myself and I like that was just a thing I saw so I knew it was like a possibility because I, I remember the moment I think I was like in I think it was a freshman in high school and a friend turned me on to um, Rex Navaretti who's a amazing Filipino comedian and it was crazy because I remember in that moment being like, oh, my God, I could do that. He's doing that. I could do that. And it was a weird, like, aha moment. And it's like, wow, that was in my brain. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I can see both perspectives of people where it's like, oh, okay, like, either came up with it or it was this thing that, like, inspired me. But um, I think it's really great that both of us, we were able to have some type of, like, Asian influence thing that we could see because I think it kind of put us on the track where we are today. You know what I mean? We're podcasting, we're doing comedy, we're doing amazing things because we know we can. And it sucks that a lot of other people who are minorities don't feel that way. I think sometimes because they don't see that. It does suck. And I think the only reason why they feel that way is because, you know, they, they don't realize that what's on the other side, you know, like I had to, I had to make an active effort to go and, find my identity or find like find what feels like me you know like i in even in college like what did you study in college for my undergrad i did a it was like business and the arts so i took a lot of like music art film theater and then i also did like management and then for grad school i just got my mfa and actually uh comedy theory Crazy. Comedy theory <laughs> MFA? I've never heard of this. Where did you get that? From Goddard College. They're based in Vermont, but I was doing one of their programs over in Washington. You go there uh, for about a week in person, yeah. pre-quarantine, obviously. And then basically you would do kind of like a semi-hybrid online program where you go back home, you just send in packets yeah. every like two, three weeks. So whatever study plan you created within that week. But that week could be completely different. Like I remember for my first actual like semester, I did kind of like a history of comedy timeline, you know, going from like vaudeville to, um, you know, MCs and like bars wow. to all these like, you know, crazy things to comedy today. And then the next semester, it was like mm. nothing but jokes. Like there was like no research. There was no like theory. There was no like, let's see what it was like, just write a hundred oh jokes God. for your packet. And I was like, okay let's go so it was it was cool because every semester was different and at the same time it was like other artists with different tools where it's like even though you're an actor and i'm a comic you're doing some funny stuff and i like the way you're doing it so i can kind of pull from like that thing and like right. throw it into mine and i love it. wow i love goddard it that is so fascinating mfa and comedy theory nobody gets to say that but you really <laughs> um yeah, but I'm also the only one saying it, so what's the <laughs> benefit of that? I think it's great. He has an MFA in comedy. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he's also <laughs> Are you enjoying your program? Because I feel like... Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Ever since I got my MFA, and my MFA was kind of like, that's the last school thing I'm going to do. Like, I'm a master. Chilling. I like school. I don't like it enough to go back. I've kind of been romancing the idea of like, if I'm going to go for it again, a PhD is kind of like the next, bloop, bloop. but it's Do so it. intimidating to even approach it's not. a level of, well, I love it. I, cause I mean, you know, if, if you enjoyed like studying, you know, comedy theory, then keep doing it and then just go get a PhD. I would say, because I, I, I was working. I was working for like close to four or five years in film pr production and distribution back in New York. And when I was working, when I was working in distribution, I hated like going to an office nine to five. I hated myself. I hated everybody around me. And it kind of ruined movies for me for a little while. Like there's a little bit of trauma. There's a little bit of trauma there. Like I went into work at a distribution company that I admired since I was like in college. You know, I used to go to all the indie movie theaters around New York and like watch their films. And whenever I would see their logo pop up, I'd be like, I want to work there. And then I 
landed that job and it was like oh dream job and i fucking hated it it was a nightmare and um like i i remember distinctly like i was asking for a raise because when they hired me my starting salary no joke was twenty eight thousand dollars like imagine try try living in new york oh jeez this was not that long ago like 2012. like 20 years ago not that it's very it's it's yeah, that's, exploitative that's and honestly i you know the thing is like when somebody offers you a, a low ball like that you're supposed to negotiate up that's why they're lowballing you but i didn't have neither of my parents went to college yeah. they didn't go to they never worked in an office they have no idea how the system works i didn't have any mentors who were telling me whenever they offer you a salary you have to negotiate up like they never taught me that so i just said okay like oh you're gonna you're gonna hire you're gonna hire a yeah, little asian stupid person sure you know and i just accepted which i shouldn't have i should have negotiated up but like a couple years in i you know felt empowered to voice myself and be like i want to raise and then the my boss was like honestly grace we don't really need you here is what he said to me yeah he was like you're you're occupation like your job is like not that necessary is what it was his response and i remember going home and crying in my shower for 45 minutes straight like i couldn't stop crying i it just tears were flowing and like i couldn't stop crying and it was really horrible and then i remember like the next day i went to work i got i, I got to the office really early and then i opened Jesus. up like 12 different applications for graduate school for a master's program in cinema media studies and then i applied to like all of them i i would every day after work i would leave at five i would walk to the library because i graduated pace university so i would go to my university library and i would study for the gres until 11 because that's when they would close so i did that for yeah. three months straight and i took the took the gres in november i got accepted to all the schools that I wanted to get accepted to, including UCLA. My other top choice was UT Austin, but I yeah. I chose UCLA, came here. I was only going to do a master's, but then during my master's program, my a professor was like, Grace, I could see you getting a master's, a PhD and going way beyond. And like, that's all she had to say. And I was like, because my I finished my master's in one year and I was just like, do I want to go back to that hellhole of a job? And you know, do I want to go back to working again? And the answer was a firm no. PhDs, you know, PhD is basically, it's a doctorate in philosophy. That's what yeah. you're getting. You're becoming a philosopher, which is, you know, love for knowledge, love for understanding the world that you're living in and the people and who you are and who you are in the place of the world, all that. So that's all you need. I don't think you should be intimidated at all. I think you're very suited to get a, a PhD. No problem. Let's get into some flashcard questions. So the, the show that I was talking about in this episode is called um, What Happened in Bali, which came out in 2004. It's a very intense four. It's not a it's not a love triangle. It's a love square. It's like four way like drama. Yeah. High, high drama. Sounds um, like a rhombus of a situation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There's like two. There's a rich couple, like a rich man and a rich woman they're engaged but they hate each other it's like their parents want them to get married okay. for business purposes of course and then there's a poor guy and a poor girl the poor guy used to be used to date the rich girl like they have a history back okay. in college the poor girl she's just like a rando but she's the protagonist you know she's like an orphan no money no house and the rich guy starts liking the poor girl and so Rich guy, rich girl together. They're rich together. Rich girl, poor guy had a thing. Had a thing, but poor no longer girl, a thing. Rich guy are now a th like the rich guy's pursuing okay. the poor girl. But the issue is also the poor guy is also into the rich girl. I mean, the poor girl. So well, the poor guy needs to make a choice. <laughs> no, the poor girl needs to make a choice. Poor girl. Well, because, the poor guy, he's, oh, wait, no, you're right. The yeah. Poor, okay. Yeah, because yes, yes. both the poor guy and the rich guy are coming after her, so she needs to make a choice. Um, so like the rich guy. <laughs> you would think. You, you would think. But, you would think. But it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work. It, well, 
they they briefly have a thing and then in the end the girl chooses the poor guy because the poor guy actually makes it big he ends up swindling the rich guy out of all of his money but through this like um finance scheme and then now i feel kind of bad for the rich guy and right Right. I, I've i seen this drama at least four times and I never had empathy for the rich guy. But like recently I was like, the rich guy is like, I feel really bad for him. So the, the yeah, he gets kind of screwed. He gets screwed big time. So the, the poor guy bounces to Bali. He goes to Bali and takes the poor girl with him. And then, okay. it, and then the poor girl looks very sad, and the 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 guy's like, "Look, you know, I know you're here with me, but you're not trapped here. You know, like you're not shackled here. If you ever want to leave, you're like a bird; you could take off any time." And then, this is the big finale: the rich guy shows up with a gun in Bali. In Bali, when the when the two when the couple are in bed together, and then the rich guy shoots the guy the poor guy and then he shoots the girl he fucking murders her in cold blood and the last thing she says to him is i love you (laughs) your face (laughs) and then the show ends (laughs) fuck the rich guy i don't like the rich guy anymore I think I had a little empathy for the rich guy. No I mean, more yeah, guy. like you know, all the all the rage and all that shit. Like he took it out on them by shooting them with a gun. Who? So what happens with rich girl? She's you know like just devastated, I guess. Yeah, because you know thing. she she broke up with the poor guy because he was poor and like that was the love of her life. And then she wanted she was greedy, so she wanted to m- make this marriage work with the rich guy, but he fucking hated her you know like just i wonder if he, nah, he didn't too. kill her he in, in fact not killing her was probably a worse punishment because she has to live with all that misery and rejection you know two rejections Jeez, yep so this is the kind of shit that i grew up watching <laughs> 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 and that's why i do comedy because I was going to say, I wonder why you're not. Oh, shit. All right, um, so let me give you okay. some flashcard questions, okay? So let's say you're a 20-something-year-old woman, right? You're the you're basically the protagonist. Yeah. You're an orphan. You're working class. No college education. No money. You have a deadbeat older brother who owes money all over town, including loan sharks, okay? And the loan sharks, they're basically gangsters and thugs. They come after you, okay. you, the poor girl. To repay your brother's debt, what do you do? Um, I can't flee because I don't have the money to flee, do I? No. Um, yeah, you're trapped. I'd probably give him some hand jobs. <laughs> not gonna won't use my mouth. Won't go all the way. But <laughs> buy me some time. No, we'll have that now. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. I feel like okay. you've never given hand jobs uh, to before? myself. Yeah, yeah. So you're a professional, but I could only do it. it if I was in the position of. So I'd have to like go behind them because I could. Yes, I wouldn't be able to do stand- this, but I could do mm-hmm. it like this. And then yeah. I would um, make a. What are they called? What are the like little voodoo dolls? Where you have pins? <laughs> That's a voodoo doll, yeah. Voodoo doll. I'd make a voodoo doll <laughs> yeah, of my yeah. brother, and I would like stab it with some pins. <laughs> Gently. I get great. Just too annoying. <laughs> Gently, not too hard. Yeah, Just a he's little, still family. Little pricks. <laughs> you can't kill the guy. You don't want to murder your brother. You no. Know. All right. Cool. Very good. All right. Okay, so let's say you're the same 20-something-year-old woman, okay? And you're a tour guide in Bali, in Indonesia, and you're responsible for guiding a group of two men and one woman, one woman the, the people I just mentioned. The woman is engaged to one of the men, and the other man is her ex-boyfriend. And it's hella awkward when you're driving them around in your little van, taking them to restaurants, taking them to sites to see. It's so awkward. What do you do? 
Um, well, you want a big tip, so I'll just be nice. <laughs> yeah. Money wins, huh? Yeah, like I would, I would be really nice to them. It's awkward. If I can diffuse the awkwardness, then yeah. I would probably get a better tip. I would give them all hand right. jobs. Same answer. <laughs> Same answer. Very good answer. I like that answer. Yeah. Hand right. jobs and okay. dolls, to be clear. <laughs> Both elements are being carried over. <laughs> but the voodoo dolls, you would do you would do more hand jobs for them, right? Like you wouldn't be pricking them with pins. It would be actually, yeah, the voodoo doll would be of all of us. It would be the couple, <laughs> the ex, and me. And then I would rub all their uh, <laughs> cloth genitalia. <laughs> okay. Very good. All right. So, okay. You're the same woman. <laughs> Great. The, all right. You're the same chick. All right. The two men are now in love with you. Okay. And okay. one of the guys is actually your next door neighbor, the poor guy. Okay. He's very poor, but he's charming as hell. Handsome, gentle, tall, intelligent, well-spoken. The other guy is rich as hell, but obnoxious. He's a playboy. He's violent. He screams a lot. He's rude. He's selfish. You get the picture, right? And you're at the poor guy's house and y'all are about to fuck. All right. Like shit is about to, y'all are about to fuck. Shit is about to go down. You and the poor guy. No, no. You and the poor guy. You're at the poor guy's house and y'all are about, it's like, it's like, you know, you're like down to fuck, but right outside the poor guy's door, you hear the rich guy shouting your name. What do you do? Oh my Lord. I guess. <laughs> oh my lord! What's the what's the rich guy's name? Uh, Jaemin, Jung Jaemin. I would have sex with the poor guy, but scream the rich guy's name. <laughs> so they're both getting a little something. Yeah, nobody's excluded. <laughs> no one. Maybe give them both a little, well, yeah, too many. <laughs> no voodoo dolls Perfect. for this town. Maybe an extra voodoo doll. Before yeah, whatever you can do for... I was going to choose the rich girl. <laughs> Why? She wasn't even part of this equation. I would, I would choose the rich because cause then it's, it's, it's an out. Uh, like if I was a the lady and these two guys were like, "Hey, lady, we like you," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, well, I'm I'm, I'm a lady who likes I'm a ladies." Dyke. Yeah, yeah, you can't yeah, be mad I about that. I want to marry a rich chick. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm gonna get the rich lady I over here. I love that. Both perfect answers. They're both perfect answers. I don't want to hurt anyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It would be unfair <laughs> to both of you. So I'm gonna go with option number three, which is her. <laughs> oh Amen. such a good answer sorry rich guys all right, poor guy. <laughs> all right last last flashcard question you're doing so great this is great I'm yeah. having a blast. all right so the rich woman is engaged to the rich guy who hires you as her gallery assistant okay so the rich chick you know shows some interest but she has different reasons okay the reason why she hires you as her gallery assistant is because she wants to keep an eye on you since her fiance is always coming over to your house always spending time with you etc okay one day the rich woman's mom shows up at the gallery that you work at and she beats the living hell out of you and screams at you curses at you and humiliates you what do you do Oh man! So this is rich lady's mom is doing yeah, this to eating me. the shit out of you. Oh my <laughs> lord! Well, if I think I would get some uh, bleach <laughs> and I would put it in a little baggie, so it looks like uh, cocaine, yeah. and then <laughs> and then I would find the old lady and I would put it in this. Because either A, she's going to snort the cocaine, and it's going to be bleach. And she probably will, because she's got an anger <laughs> issue, anger problem. She's probably gonna, you know she likes to... So then that yeah. will hurt her. Or um, call the cops mm. on her, 
and be like, hey, that lady over there, I think I saw her have a little bag of cocaine. And then the cops come, and they give her some flat. Yeah. Okay. So you would frame her. I would frame her with fake cocaine. <laughs> Framing and cocaine. Is that, is that always how you say cocaine? Cocaine? It's, I remember um, hearing, I think it was John Mulaney did a bit where he said cocaine like that. He said cocaine. <laughs> and then I found out this morning he's in rehab. For cocaine. For cocaine. So I think it's just in the headspace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. So good. All right. That's that's the end of the flashcard series. Beautiful job, you! Applause, so good. Applause I love your answers. Us. We did a beautiful yeah. job. Great, so good. I always yeah. like working with you or doing anything that we are on together. <laughs> so this was really enjoyable, and I'm really happy this happened. Thanks so much. It was so lovely having you, and um, yeah, hopefully we'll we'll meet again soon in the after pandemic times. It'll be soon. We'll we'll see each other soon. So next week, we're going to be talking about the hit TV series Crash Landing on You, which is currently streaming on Netflix. So if you're on Netflix, if you're in the United States, it's available for you to see. Uh, feel free to binge it, and then you could follow along with us next week when we're talking about it. And I'll be dropping some Korean TV knowledge and Korean history knowledge on that as well, so please get into it. If you have any um, questions for me, please feel free to email me at kdramaschool at gmail.com. And... Follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter, follow us on TikTok. All the handles are the same, at KDrama School. And if you want to learn about our show some more or keep up with other updates, you can always visit our website, kdramaschool.com. So thank you for listening, and I'll see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs>